Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home to the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally, and with me is... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery! Hi, Ian! (laughs) You're with me, but so far away, so near, yet so far, Matt. We're all connected (laughs) through the the beauty of the internet. Get the wheel spinning. I'm jealous of you looking at you here, Matt, with your, uh, your sunglasses and your cap on, blocking the sunlight out in sunny Scotland. And I'm freezing in Melbourne, Australia. And the, the topic for this episode is... It's out of bounds. Out of bounds. Ooh. Okay, uh, let let me have this one, Matt, because out of bounds. Look, I'm going to take you back. This, this is a fascinating story about how sport, and particularly the fans of this sport, basically spawned a whole fashion era, which is still continuing today. Like, this is, I'm not just saying just, like, fashion as in, like, just observing what anyone who turns up any day dresses like. I'm talking fashion that goes right to the pinnacle of the catwalks in Paris, New York, London. It's extraordinary how this story starts. And I'm going to go back to 1960-61 football season, English soccer. And a young man from Scotland, where you're at at the moment, Matt, Bill Shankly, takes over a football team in Liverpool. The Liverpool football team. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this, 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 uh, Bill Shankly did say famously there's two football teams in Liverpool, Liverpool and Liverpool reserves. But to any Evertonians, listen, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it's, it's his first full season in charge of, of LFC. It, he, he takes Liverpool over at a time in Liverpool's history where they've just been in the doldrums. They're in the Division 2, so the old Division 2, so the second division, uh, as it was sensibly named back then. Yeah. You know, you remember those days, Matt, where the first division was called Division 1, yeah. <laughs> then 2, 3, 4. Simple, but now obviously uh, commercialisation has got the better of us. But he takes Liverpool over. They've almost they've languished in Division 2 for almost a decade and a team of Liverpool's size and support, this is kind of unusual and, and, and sad, really, in the post-war periods, particularly as Liverpool as a city is trying to rebuild itself after the Second World War. Bill Shankly takes them over. He's a very charismatic individual. He almost picks not just the football club up, but the whole city in this and envelops them in this sense of of pride almost reflecting back their the the pride of the city and the parochialism that exists in Liverpool and he manages to get them promoted not only promoted but in his first season in division 1 they finish 8th which is quite an achievement for for the first season but it could like many teams do as you might know Matt being a Sunderland fan the first season, the first album is often the easiest to do. Easiest, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that all too well. It, and it, it often like embeds this sense that like you know you're going to be able to get into Europe the next year. You know, you're not. <laughs> there's no danger of relegation. But quickly, as as you'll know painfully, is that teams find you out, and that buoyancy of the first season of promotion often you pay for in the second season but not so for Liverpool because Bill Shankly not only consolidates eighth position they actually finish first in 63-64 season 
And this is massive for the city, massive for the football club that have been languishing. All of a sudden, Bill Shankly's transformed them into the champions of England. Wow. But there's something critical in this story that really, if this doesn't happen, the rest of this story really doesn't happen potentially. Because what happens in this season is that Liverpool, because they finish first, they qualify for the preliminary stages of the European Cup. This seems unremarkable in itself because they've won the domestic league and so they get to go and play these preliminary games in Europe. So Mm -hmm. what? It doesn't really matter. But tie this in with what's happening in Liverpool and also the world at this time is that Liverpool's got a real sense of kind of international and outward-looking belief, self-belief because of the Beatles. The Beatles, Mersey Beat... Like this, you know, to have four lads from Liverpool being watched on the Ed Sullivan show by, I think, over 90 million people in 1964. Liverpool is in on vogue. It's in fashion. And a lot of people are trying to mimic the Scouse accents. They're trying to mimic the Beatles haircuts. They're trying to dress like the Beatles. And if you watch some of the old shots of Liverpool supporters... It, on the on the cop or where, where else in the ground, they're wearing suits. Mm. They look all like reservoir dogs. It's quite amazing that you'd put your shirt and tie on to go and watch football. Oh, that's there's, cool. Yeah, there's just a lovely romance to it. Like people wore suits for weddings or to go to church on Sunday for to wear it. This was the cathedral, like to go the match. And my dad used to go home and away. And he used to wear his suit on away games as well. So they'd turn up at the train station, full suit. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? But it does show that fashion matters here for the fans. Mm-hmm. But it matters for the football club as well. Because when they start playing in Europe, the first European game Liverpool play is against Reykjavik. Uh, the Icelandic team, uh, they they beat them 11-1 on aggregate over two games. And, and certainly this isn't the start of anything uh, major, but it is like that little toe in the water that, you know, European football is different, it's exciting, and it could open doors to something else. Fast forward to the late 70s. I mean, Liverpool now are seeing themselves as... A European power. There are certainly a domestic power. And on that journey, they're visiting all these amazing uh, locations across Europe. Obviously, not many fans would have made the trip to Reykjavik. But then in these European competitions, they've got, they've visited Anderlecht, Cologne, Milan, uh, Turin. Uh, they play Standard Liège, Honved. Dortmund, Ajax, Malmo, Munich, uh, Bilbao, Hungary. They go to Portugal, Bucharest, Switzerland, Frankfurt, Berlin, Dresden. That's just through football alone. That's just their fixtures. What an amazing travel brochure that is. That's brilliant, isn't it? You know, and add this into the mix that Liverpool as a city has always been quite outward looking because it was one of the biggest ports in the world, so second the, in town, the empire. Yeah. Uh, Shipbuilding ship was happening over in Birkenhead and Camelherds. Lots of people 
uh, were in the Merchant Navy or in the Royal Navy. There was a huge amount of comings and goings. And there was this history in Liverpool that um, if you worked and went in the Merchant Navy, you'd often end up in New York, which was seen as a fashion capital. And Mm. if you're in the Merchant Navy, everybody in Liverpool knew about it because you were the only fellow walking around with uh, this flash American suit that nobody else had. And this is almost ties in with the Beatles as well, because one of the reasons the Beatles played a lot of the music they did is because it was bootlegged from America via blokes who worked in the in the Merchant Navy, bringing these records of black American music back into Liverpool. And not everybody had them. It wasn't like you could download them and you could, you know, be exposed to these records. You just had to have the physical disc. So the physical LP. So it's, a, it's still a disc, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a disc shape. It's like a discus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all of this kind of history adding up to this but and fashion kind of ebbs and flows and obviously the Beatles are probably lead a lot of this fashion as well in the changes the 10 years that they were together what what happens with uh you know by the time they get to Sergeant Peppers and stuff it's very uh I was very gonna diverse. say yeah I can't imagine that you know Anfield uh and the cop end everyone dressed as Sergeant Pepper <laughs> yeah, I suppose like the collarless uh, suit would be the extreme end of things, I suppose. But it's interesting that when we get to 1977, um, Liverpool play Borussia Mönchengladbach in the final of the European Cup. They play in Rome and they win 3-1. Um, they've played Saint Etienne and, and Jurich on the way. Uh, it also, I've got to give mention to one of what's put down as one of the finest um, football banners of all time, certainly Liverpool banners. But one of the fans in the crowd had a banner about uh, Liverpool's very tough tackling defender, Joey Jones, which is a great name anyway. (laughs) Joey Jones is a very tenacious player. In fact, when they um, played one of the earlier legs, the fans would get um, these little cushions you pay like a you know a thousand lira or something to get one of these cushions to sit on because the stadium was so old that it was just all stone like seating or concrete so you'd sit on this and in disgust when Liverpool were winning the fans in their disgust at their home team would throw in these cushions onto the onto the pitch (laughs) Joey Jones thought they were throwing them at him so he starts throwing them back during the game (laughs) But he's, he's a very charismatic guy. And the banner read, Joey ate frog's legs, made the Swiss roll, and now he's munching Gladbach, oh, which nice. is wonderful. <laughs> so Liverpool win this final, and it's massive because it's set in trend this huge dominance of European and domestic football for Liverpool Football Club. But the other thing that it's done on its way is it's really given the fan base confidence uh, in Liverpool. Young lads from Liverpool being able to go to these European cities and the way that they get there is via train. The key to this, Matt, is a, it was a shop in Liverpool which specialised in student travel and the shop was called Transalpino. Right. <laughs> You could go, which is great in a Liverpool accent as well, but you get to, you go to Transalpino and you could buy a student rail ticket. 
Now, the cheapest student rail ticket was to somewhere like Ostend or you know, somewhere close, like we're just off the ferry. Yeah. So you could buy your rail tickets. You could go to from Liverpool to London. Then you get the train from London to Dover, get on the ferry, all included in the ticket. And then you could get into a European city. But obviously, Liverpool people, um, let's say they're enterprising, that they were able to maybe buy the cheapest ticket and then rub out the destination and <laughs> write in the destination that they wanted to go to that may or may not have been more expensive. Right, So, <laughs> So it was very commonplace to kind of go in, buy your Transalpino ticket and go on these little adventures to Europe. Like, for example, to go to Rome, the ticket, they had a soccer special ticket. It was £59 to travel, return to Rome on the train. Uh, so that was from Lime Street in Liverpool. My dad made that journey on the train. Uh, he actually uh, stood up my mum on their first ever date because <laughs> because he was in Rome. Because he was off to Rome. Nice. <laughs> But it was very much a case of um, people just in that scenario. It wasn't like a, a, you know, you didn't plan it for months or you didn't book like this. It, this was like literally there was coaches or there was trains leaving and it was saying like, we've got to get go now. And it's like, oh, I've got to go t- go home from work and get changed. No, you won't have time. You've just got to jump on the bus or just yeah. got to get, you know, and you ended up in Rome um, to see Liverpool win. And I suppose the critical thing to this story, how this all manifests itself in fashion, is that Liverpool fans, they start going away to these European cities and they start seeing things that they haven't seen before. Not just the great architecture, not just the the piazzas and the boulevards and this different way of living, which is very alien to to this, uh, you know, a city that was was pretty much destroyed after the Second World War and is still recovering in its post-industrial kind of complex. The thing that matters is something you can take home with you. Trainees, Matt, which other people might might call trainers or training shoes or sports footwear, but is known in Liverpool as trainees. And for for this episode, I'm going to refer to them as trainees um, to give them their due respect because people would go and they'll find these trainees. Now, trainees were quite a new thing because they were only really um, for sports. So you only wore trainees for sports. Everybody wore shoes. Like you never see any old pictures of people in a suit and trainees. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's very hard to like imagine like any uh, you know black and white photograph with trainees, but there's they're designed for sports. So you took your proper shoes off and you put your your sports footwear on to yeah. run on the track or ride your bike or whatever you were doing. But where that change was in the Olympics and particularly um, in Munich uh, when Adidas, uh, which is known in Liverpool as Adidas, which I'll refer to as Adidas as well, um, is Adidas um, made these uh, leisure leisure shoes, which were kind of flat-soled, very comfortable, but they were designed for um, the athletes to wear in the Olympic Village 
So when they weren't off the... So they'd have their tracksuit on, they'd have the running shoes on, they'd run around the track, and it seems stupid that they would put shoes on. Yeah. So they put these, like, lounge um, leisure shoes made by Adidas, put them on, and so the leisure shoe was born. When the fans were travelled away, this was the first time they'd seen these leisure shoes, and they quite liked them. Now, Matt, you'll know that growing up in, in the UK, uh, where, let's see, people are probably more suspicious of each other maybe than in European uh, towns and cities because, say, for example, uh, when you go to European Piazza and you might sit out in a cafe, you don't pay for your meal before you have it, do you? You, no. you eat your meal, you get served drinks, it could be six or seven or eight drinks, and then at the end, you fix up your bill. Yeah. Right. Not in England. <laughs> There's many places where you have to pay before before you receive any goods. Yeah. Think about shoe shops, Matt. What do shoe shops do? They give you one shoe. There's only one shoe on display, isn't it? Yeah. So because is it <laughs> It's all tied into the the, the the entrepreneurial or enterprising scouser, is it? Can you see where this is going? Is that in Europe, the trusting Europe, I trusting European cousins, they would put two shoes on display because you're buying a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so surely you need to see both. So when... Uh, these enterprising young people from Liverpool would go over to the shoe shops. They might see a shoe shop and a pair of shoes they liked. They didn't have to try them on, Matt. They didn't have to ask for the... They didn't have any problem. They would just pile into a shop and then they'd be able to take a pair and get them back home, smuggle them back across the border. And obviously what happened is that it became a badge of honour to have these shoes because it meant you were an adventurer, you were yeah. like the men in the merchant navy came back with a suit fresh from New York. These lads were coming back from with a pair of trainees from, you know, Cologne or from Switzerland or, you know, Turin or Milan or whatever it was. And then this spawned a, a demand for these uh, shoes. But could could you just not get them in in the UK then? Adidas had a very structured business model, and you had to be an authorized seller. Of Adidas, uh, and if you were, they were very kind of top down, uh, fairly controlling about what you could and couldn't sell, and so there was also a sense that of about um, brand as well. Like brand was very important, and one of the really fascinating things about how this feeds in uh, to nineteen eighties sort of what's known as now casual football culture which is often associated with football hooliganism and stuff we'll talk about that a bit later but one of the um important things about this is the 1970s golden era of wimbledon so in what sense (laughs) i know so (laughs) it's mad because it in wimbledon um you're only allowed to wear whites yeah but all of these really high-end fashionable brands cottoned on to the fact that uh pun intended that you could um get your little logo on polo shirts and these track suits and leisure wear like Fila, lacoste sergio tacchini aless 
all of these brands. And then you had this golden era of tennis with such amazing tennis players through the 70s and 80s. And, and, and probably for this story, we are focusing on, this is a male thing, you know, like um, clearly there was a lot of amazing and superb female tennis players. But mm-hmm. really, this is about lad culture. It is very gendered. And so the, the weird thing is, though, is that these brands are, in this high end, you know, the Lawn Tennis Association, you know, it could not be more la da And then you've got these lads from Liverpool who are going and buying these fashionable high ends. Well, I say buying, but really nice clobber that they can put on. The It has this other effect as well, because... The fashion for football hooligans to this point has been very designated into, you know, people would wear certain things like mods and rockers and they would look a certain way and they became very easily identifiable to police and the law enforcement. So wearing, like turning up to a game, wearing like smart trousers, wearing these trainees and wearing like a Lacoste polo shirt you look like you were going to go and play tennis or something. You look like you are going to drink pims with your mates, not cause a ruckus at, you know, in a market town before the game. So it also became like a, a way to, to hide from police camouflage. and law enforcement. Exactly like urban camouflage. And obviously you mix that in with like the self-expression that's come after the 60s with punk, uh, Northern Soul. Um, Manchester had the Perry boys who wore the Fred Perry uh, polo shirts. And then you've got the Scallies from Liverpool. Later you have like the firms uh, starting up and the casuals in, in the south of England and London clubs and things like that. But for for Liverpool... The influence is clear because it was Liverpool who were bringing these trainees back. But also one of the key um, protagonists in this story is a guy called Wade Smith, who was an entrepreneur who set up a shop in Liverpool. He used to work for Adidas, but he refused to have a contract or officially supply Adidas stock. It's reported that he sold 110,000 pairs in his time in the 80s in Liverpool. Like, within a few years, he sold that many in this little shop in Liverpool called Wade Smith. He started off his business. They drove a transit van across to Europe, to, went to Germany. He had 40,000 Deutschmarks in his pocket, cash. And he went to the, a supplier in Germany, and he said, I want to buy some some trainees. <laughs> and the, the fella said, well, I, I, if you're going to take that many trainees with you, I need a bank... Uh, check and either some sort of guarantee here i'm not letting you walk out the door he's like i've got cash i've got forty thousand deutschmarks wow. this guy is like he said he he filled the van with 400 pairs of trainees and then got the um drove back and got the ferry he's wade smith reportedly said he was like so paranoid about that trip back because he thought the ferry was gonna sink or like yeah. they just weren't gonna get or they're gonna be stopped by customs or whatever but he managed to get them back into the store, get them back and started to sell them. And they just went like hotcakes to the point where these, so one of the models of uh, of Adidas were called Adidas Kick. They were hugely popular. Then they had Adidas Trim Traps. And even to this day, slang in Liverpool for trainees has in some quarters that you call them Trabanies. 
which is <laughs> which is a, a homage to the culture of Adidas in Liverpool. Like yeah. these, you've got your Adidas Shabanis on. Even like um, brands like Kickers. Do you remember them? Yeah, yeah. Don't you ever had them in school, like kickers? But the mock because they they had moccasins and then they had this kickers um, like leather label on them. Yeah. And they became fashionable. But the moccasin, the way they design kickers, is that in Liverpool they're known as pasties because they resemble a Cornish pasty. <laughs> <laughs> That's gold. So you 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 might hear if you're in Liverpool, you might hear one schoolboy say to another, "E look at the pasties on those, mate." <laughs> <laughs> so it's just this remarkable story about how Shankly takes over Liverpool and then allows this football club, really a sleeping giant, unleashed upon Europe, and then this subculture of young lads visiting all of these cities bringing back the goods home and all made possible really by Transalpino there's a a shop in Liverpool that's now called Transalpino which is again which pays respect to the student travel shop Uh, and they sell um, dead stock trainers which uh, dead stock trainees are basically like original authentic trainees that are still boxed uh, still got you know all the original features and there's still a massive demand for these footwear and and also club i don't think clobber wasn't a word until uh this fashion um scene took off as well so it's had a massive influence obviously there's been a lot of films made but they've generally centered around hooliganism and things peter storm a very traditional british brand peter storm was a brand that invented the cagoule, which oh, is the 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 rain the pack like pack away raincoat yeah. which you you pulled over and it had like a half zip and a hood, and that was hugely popular. Strangely enough, that got t- taken over that company uh, after um, the guy who started it was from the navy. Um, when he died, it got taken over by Blacks and JD Sports, mm-hmm. which shows you like the the influence in culture that um you know mainstream culture the cagoule had as well so there's so many crossovers in fashion in labels in names and i said before about how this went to the high end you know uh parisian and uh, new york catwalks and so on because um brands like burberry uh paul smith you know you had stone island and all this type of thing all these high-end brands they all get involved uh, or get yeah all get hijacked by um you know football fans who want these you know 600 pound jumpers and uh you know ridiculously expensive uh clothes to go to the football in so it's just such a a massive kind of confusion of of events and things that come together that i think if if liverpool hadn't won the league that year and they hadn't started on their european journey Maybe the whole casual culture, the whole um, development, and maybe Adidas's bottom line may have all been affected. <laughs> Sliding doors. I mean, you you got to ask yourself the question. I don't know where Lacoste's headquarters are, but I imagine they'll be in some place like Zurich or Vienna or somewhere. Like, I don't know, Monaco probably. 
but they must look at their stores, you know, how much they sell, and they're like, why are we selling most of our gear in an industrial working class town in the north of England? Yeah. Like, there's, there's also, this is a one other interesting thing, Matt, is that because of the influence of these uh, really high-end brands that really came after the golden age of tennis, fans bought a lot of them. But it turns out they're not very practical because when you're following a winter sport, <laughs> going in a flimsy uh, polo shirt that was developed to wear in the south of France yeah. doesn't cut it. And so it's interesting that you see the development of much more practical uh, much more, uh, you know, sensible, if you like, uh, but maybe more threatening. You know, the the coats with the hoods and the goggles yeah. uh, that become popular. You know, Berghaus becomes popular. Helly Hansen, uh, Henry Lloyd jackets. All of these brands then the become, yeah, more popular. But they're way more practical as well. So maybe these lads weren't as hard as they thought they were because at the end of the day, they they were thinking, I'm bloody freezing it. Yeah. <laughs> Stood here in my flimsy clothes and my Trevanies. <laughs> so, God, that's funny. So that is essentially, Matt, that is the story of how a sport or maybe a Scotsman who took over a failing club in Liverpool managed to influence a whole genre of fashion and a whole subculture in England, which has become so popular around the world that you can jump online and you can see, you can follow Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook pages that just celebrate this casual the football, football casual. culture. Nice. Oh, brilliant story, Ian. Thank you so much for that. Um, thank you very much to all our listeners all around the world. Um, if anybody's got any suggestions for any, uh, any shows we could do, uh, please get in touch at thewheelofsport at gmail.com. Uh, or you can reach us on Twitter or Instagram at The Wheel of Sport. Uh, and please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, five stars are appreciated. Uh, thanks so much for that again, Ian. Absolutely, Matt. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, I'm off to go and uh, get me pasties on. Yeah, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna definitely get some, uh, get some trainers on. <laughs> I think the one thing is, is that just even me talking about that story, I just want to now go and sit and Google loads of images about... Yeah, definitely. That's <laughs> uh, what I'll be doing. Poor <laughs> whatever. Anyway, thanks a lot, Matt. Cheers, mate. Take All it easy. Best. See bye you. Bye. bye.